So for those of you who um, don't know me, my name is Clay, Clay Mackey. You can call me Clay. Um, my wife would love to be here tonight, but our, two of our three kids are sick with a cold. So uh, that was a bit of a bummer, but it's the Lord's plans, not ours. So she sends her um, love to you tonight. Uh, would love to have been here. And ironically, nobody wants to watch our kids when they're sick. So I'm just kidding. So I am uh, one of the pastors here at Timberlake, and um, like Rich said, I serve alongside him uh, in this ministry. We serve together, so if I haven't met you yet, just please come introduce yourself. I would love to, love to meet you tonight. Well, tonight I am also very excited to begin our study of 1 John. So, as you can see on the screen, we are studying the book of 1 John tonight. You can go ahead and turn there. And I am excited because anytime I begin a new book of the Bible, a book that I haven't uh, just like deeply studied myself, uh, it literally feels like I'm, I'm starting a new adventure, a new hike that I know is going to be hard, lots of hours, but uh, the views are going to be breathtaking. And when it's a new author of Scripture, and what I mean by that is it's an, an author I've never preached before. I get especially excited because I feel like I have the opportunity to get to know this man, John. I get to understand how he thinks. I get to think Christ's thoughts after him. I get to hear what's important to him, what's on his heart, what truths and exhortations the Spirit has put upon his heart to communicate to the church, to us. And as we're going to see tonight, um, what John has written in this letter is going to be especially helpful to us in Boundless this semester. And that's because the reality is, in a ministry like ours, that most of you are on the front end of your Christian life. That should be pretty obvious. You're still young, still figuring things out, as much as we want to pretend that we have things together. Many of you have only been out of your parents' home for a few weeks now. And uh, as I talk with you, just in conversation, we have, we, we have these talks about what it means to, to make your faith your own and to have assurance that you're really a Christian, and there's often some confusion about the gospel and what, what the gospel means, what, actu- what following Christ actually entails. And as a result, sometimes you're not really sure where you're at. Well, John would tell you, according to this letter, that you need assurance. Assurance. And he seeks to help you from this letter. And even for those of you who have been around a little while and are, are growing in the Lord... There's still those ever-present temptations. You know what I mean? All of us are tempted toward idolatry. We're tempted toward drifting away from Christ. We're tempted to hope in cheap substitutes. We're tempted to build our lives around these false hopes that, that lead us away from Christ and really into joylessness. Sin leads us to an inflamed and guilty conscience. And if we continue in the sin, we find ourselves with little to no assurance. We ask ourselves, do we really belong to the Lord? Well, John's going to address this too. He'll tell us how to handle our sin, and he'll give us a fresh view of our great Savior. John reorients us to the basics of the Christian life, the basics of the gospel, the essentials of our union with Christ. And he'll explain what it means to actually follow Christ and to have assurance for those who belong to him. 
So I am excited to study this letter. And as we're going to see tonight, John wrote this letter to address all these kinds of concerns in the lives of those in his church. It's a letter about life. It's about true life, is how he puts it. Eternal life in Christ. It's about how we can know with confidence that we have it, and how we can experience it more fully right now, even now. And it's about what we have to look forward to when he returns. And as I've waded into this study over the last month or so, it feels like I'm sitting down with an old man, because I kind of am. John is old. An old apostle. A pastor that's just full of wisdom, full of tenderness, full of experience. And most of all, he's brimming with the love of Christ. I was telling Bailey earlier, it's like sitting down with a guy that you know has something that you don't have. A profound relationship with the Lord, or maybe not in the way you have it. And that's what it's like meditating on the, on the first John. Over and over again, this, this man, you see his, his overflow of Christ's love for the sheep. He, he calls his church, this church that he's writing to, these churches, his children. So he's got to be pretty old if you're calling the church your children. And what he means by that is that his spiritual children. He's full of, of fatherly concern that his own children flourish in Christ. And as we'll see, the flock that he dearly loved, the flock that he had painstakingly taught, was unsettled by a significant crisis in the church. These young believers had questions, and, and some had, even, uh, had doubts even, Doubts if they truly knew the Lord. Some had veered off track. So John writes an incredibly encouraging and steadying pastoral letter to remind them of the basics of the gospel and what it means to follow Christ. So that they would have a deep and profound assurance. So what I want to do tonight, as you can see from the, on the screen, is I just want to introduce us to 1 John. I want to whet our appetite, so to speak, for the meal that we're going to have in 1 John this semester, Thursday after Thursday. And I want to orient us to, to the letter as a whole so that as we work through the parts week in and week out, that we can, we can fit them together into John's overall purpose in this letter. And as we do this, and I don't, this is not going to be a dry lesson, I want to motivate you to really lean in and make the most of this study this semester. I want you to see what John himself intends by this letter. Or, or what he expects the Lord to do in the hearts and lives of those who embrace his message, his message of what he calls the word of life. We'll see that this morning, or this evening. So, tonight, we're essentially going to organize our thoughts about 1 John under three headings. So, three headings is, is kind of where we're going here. And we're going to look at what occasioned this letter. There was a crisis in the, in the church that caused John to write it. So we're going to call that first heading, as you can see, John's situation. Then after that, we'll unpack a little bit about what was, what was going on. But then after that, I want to look at how John addressed it by considering the, the, the letter as a whole, sort of the beginning and ending of the letter, seeing how he starts and finishes it, because it gives us a lot of insight into how he is going to address the situation. And we're going to call that heading John's message. So we've got a situation, his message, and then finally I want to consider what John says that he explicitly hoped to accomplish with this letter. 
And that will give us some insight into what we can expect the Lord to do in our own hearts. And I think it will really motivate us to lean into the study this semester. And we'll call that final heading John's goals. It's goals for the letter. All right, so let's, let's deal with these one at a time. John's situation. What was going on that encouraged him to write this, this letter? Well, like I said a moment ago, John wrote to a church or to churches, probably be better to say it that way, churches in crisis. But how do we know that? And beyond that, what was specifically going on in these churches? Well, most of the time, when you start a letter in the New Testament, when the the authors of Scripture begin to pen these letters, the authors will be up front in their opening verses. The author will name himself, typically. You know, like we studied Ephesians last year, Paul, the apostle of, of Jesus Christ, or by the will of God, or whatever. And usually the author also mentions who he's writing to, to the church in Ephesus. Those kinds of details are at least a starting point in understanding what, what's going on, what precipitated this writing. Well, we get neither in this letter. Just nothing. John doesn't name himself as the author. He doesn't tell us who he's writing to. So we're kind of starting out in no man's land from that standpoint. So there is another question. Well, how do we actually know that John wrote it? If he doesn't name himself. Well, historically... The early church fathers said that John wrote it. And we were talking early, like guys like Irenaeus and Tertullian. And it was accepted into our Bibles, into the canon early, because of that, uh, that affirmation from the church fathers. They all kind of assumed that he, that he wrote it on that basis. And beyond that witness from history, the letter itself claims to be written by an eyewitness of Christ. We're going to look at that in detail next week. It claims to be written by not just an eyewitness, but one who actually touched the risen Lord. John's going to say he, he handled him or he touched him. We'll talk about why that's significant next week. But the, the telltale issue is, is how strikingly similar this letter is to the Gospel of John. In which we know that, the, that John the Apostle wrote. That's clear from the Gospel of John. In this letter, the style is very similar. Metaphors are similar. So if you have any, any awareness of the Gospel of John, you read it at all, you're going to read 1 John, and you're going to think, whoa, that's a lot of the same language. And, and so it's hard to imagine anyone other than John the Apostle wrote this letter, and thus um, we understand it to be called 1 John. So there's a bit about the author, and just to, by, by way of kind of just sketching out how we know it's John, but what about the people he wrote it to? the Christians that he wrote to. How do we know, do we know anything about them at all? Well, again, those same church fathers tell us that John lived out his his final years around Ephesus. He had a significant ministry there, and and beyond Ephesus, not just to the city, but beyond that to the churches in, in the Asia Minor region, right around, kind of in and around Ephesus. So just kind of log that away, so church history tells us that. And then if we go to another one of John's works, the book of Revelation, there we find John addressing seven churches in Asia Minor, each with a specific message from Christ to that church. And when you compare Christ's messages to those churches, 
and then you compare that to the thrust of 1 John, you're going to also see a lot of similarities. So, based on those two things, I think it's safe to assume that he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor, likely around Ephesus. And, again, this is a bit more academic, but just for your sake, I think the letter is likely a circular letter, what's called a circular letter, which means it wasn't intended for one specific church. It was intended for several churches in that region that were all plagued by the same issues. It was intended to be read in in several churches in this area that were all facing the same crisis. So you're saying, okay, Clay, that's fun data. So what, is there anything else we can know about this situation beyond the fact that John wrote it and he wrote it to people in Ephesus? Um, those are pretty scant details. We, yes, there is a little bit more we can know, and it'll, it'll help us. If we closely read the letter itself, we can find some hints of what led John to picking up the pen. You can think of it like hearing one side of a conversation. Your roommate's talking on the phone, and you're trying to put the pieces together of what girl it is he's talking to, or what guy it is she's talking to. Or at home, and your mom's having an intense conversation, and you're trying to figure it out. That's called eavesdropping, by the way. Probably shouldn't do that. But in the event that that, that happens, you know what I'm saying. You're, trying to, you're kind of putting the pieces together of what this conversation entails, but only from one side. And that's essentially what we're doing in this letter. We're putting the pieces of the conversation together from one side, from John's side. And that's called mirror reading. And you've got to be careful with that because you can, you can overread the details. But So from that, what was going on? Well, we know that many had recently left the church, or even the churches, in in this network. Look over in chapter 2, verse 18. John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. It's like, whoa, who are these (laughs) Antichrists? that you're talking about. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. Now again, we're going to unpack that, but apparently there had arisen within the church a group that had begun to teach something different than what John and the other apostles had taught this flock previously. Eventually, they got to a point where they left the church, and they took people with them, apparently claiming that they were the only ones that had a true relationship with God. And it rattled everybody who remained in the church. I mean, think of that. And these were le- some of these people were leaders. So imagine you come to Timberlake next week. Pastor Brian's not here because he's off on a trip and a third of your church is gone. And two or three of the leaders are gone too. And they're gone, and they're saying, you guys don't get it. You're misunderstanding the gospel. You're misunderstanding Jesus. We understand it. We're starting a church over here. You guys are going to hell if you don't repent. Now again, I'm, I'm filling in some details here. We don't know exactly what they said, but that's the gist of it. We show up, and a third of our congregation is gone. That's what was happening, or something similar, in this church. And and you can imagine everybody would be rattled. But even though, here's where it gets dicey, even though these people had left the church, 
these false teachers were still active in the church. Which is how it always is, right? People leave your church and then they, they continue to work behind the scenes. I shouldn't say always, often is the case. The false teachers were still active. They kept trying to influence those in the church to adopt their views and join essentially their cult. So look in chapter 2, verse 26. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So they've left, yeah, but they're still trying to deceive. There's backdoor conversations happening. There's conversations in the first century coffee shops, or whatever they had. And they're trying to undermine the, the apostles, particularly John. They kept trying to influence those in the church. But, but what, what were they doing? Like what, what did their false teaching involve? What, were, what was so sinister about this? Well, we don't know how it presented, but we know at least what John is interpreting it as, um, because he makes, it, he makes it clear in the letter. They denied, in some sense, that Jesus was actually the Christ, and that the Christ actually took on human form. All right, so look in chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So he, he goes on, Whoever confesses the Son is the Father also. Again, we're going to try to unpack that as much as we can when we get to it. But I just want to point out, at least John is saying in some sense, that they're, whatever they're saying is amounting to denying Christ. So then he goes on, chapter 4, he says, Beloved, look in verse 1, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you hear that? Is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus you're importing from that last clause, essentially in the flesh, doesn't confess Jesus in the flesh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So again, John's trying to make these connections, that these people who are, are whatever they're saying is amounting to denying the Lord Jesus, and they're denying that the Christ actually took on bodily form. Could have been, for those of you nerds, like a proto-Gnosticism. But, or, or just other kind of heresies are floating over. We don't really know because we don't have a lot of data on it. But whatever's going on is that they're denying the humanity and the deity of Christ combined here. So, and it also appears not just that, that, that they denied that, as significant as that is, it also appears that they either downplayed or just outright denied the atonement and their own personal need for forgiveness. So look in 1 John 5, verses 6 and 7. Now again, this is, these, are, these beg to be interpreted, these phrases I'm going to read to you, but just hang with me. This is he who came, talking about Jesus, he who came by water and blood. Do you see that? He who came by water and blood. Probably a reference to his baptism, came by water, and blood, his death. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And this is in a, in a context of, of, again, just kind of going at what appears to be a ver, uh, what's going on with the false teaching. So, apparently they were either denying the atonement or downplaying it. 
And with that, they were either excusing or just outright denying their own sinfulness. Which means they were denying their need for the atonement. So if you, if you flip over in chapter 1, you see this denial in, in chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then again, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, as God, a liar and his word is not in us. So I think these things dovetail together. I think they're denying the atonement and, as a result, denying their, their sinfulness or they're minimizing their sin. And I think another thing that kind of flows out of this that you see, again, again we've got to be careful of not overreading the situation, but I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that if we were to see their lives, it would, it would become very evident that they are not loving other people sacrificially either. Okay? They're not loving other people sacrificially either. That's another, another thing that resurfaces again and again in this letter. And they weren't, definitely weren't zealous to live a holy life. And they enjoyed indulging in all the world had to offer. In other words, they loved the world. And so this kind of teaching and living was creating confusion among the faithful sheep. And it was sowing seeds of doubt. So how you live doesn't matter. Right? It's, 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 I, I know the Lord. I know Him. I know God. These people were not just denying that there's a God. They probably weren't even denying that there's a Messiah. They're just redefining it. But this teaching was enticing the faithful to excuse their sin, to relabel it, or even outright indulge in it. And the teaching tempted the saints to minimize the work of Christ. And so we can see why John had this kind of pastoral burden to help them gain clarity. A lot was at stake for these spiritual children of his. And I think just, just for the moment, let's just, like, just, just lean in here. Even though we're not in that situation, and praise God, we're not in that situation. We're living around all kind of false teaching within evangelicalism. Like within the church today. What we would call the evangelical church today. And sadly, just, just a few manifestations, sadly, we pastors encounter professing Christians who outright refuse to own their sin. Like, how can that be? They would rather call their sinful fear, anxiety, whatever it is, they would rather call that a disorder or a mental illness so that they can evade responsibility when it's clearly habitual sin. They're clearly believing a lie and they're clearly operating under that, that sin. Others are going to flaunt their so-called Christian liberty. And the outflow of that is indulging in sin. And then they have the audacity to accuse others who strive to please the Lord as being legalistic or judgmental. Those are just two quick, easy manifestations of this right on LU's campus. And it's easy to get swept up in these kinds of false teachings which were similar to the situation that John addressed in his letter, among many more that we could talk about. So it's important that we lean in here. And that's, that's what we know of the situation, you know, at the, at the you know, temptation of overreading here. We'll just pull back there, and that's, that's 
a thumbnail sketch of kind of what we know about what was going on in this situation. So, that's why John picks up his pen to address the saints here. But, but how does he address them, right? What does he say? What's his message? And that brings us to our second heading tonight. I'm just going to call it John's message. What's he doing in this, in this letter? You know, a lot of words here. Can, is there any way we can kind of boil this down and, and get an idea? Well, I think John is, is trying to really bolster the church's assurance in a few basic ways. Right? He's trying to, if you want to, I mean, there's ways to, different ways to say this, but I think you could say he's trying to, to kind of buoy it up, bolster the church's assurance in just a couple, couple ways here. Initially, he, he reminds the church, he reminds you and I of the gospel. Or, like he's, he calls it, the word of life. This is the found, fountainhead. It's the foundation for all of our assurance. And, it, it's, and it's fundamental that we don't look to ourselves first, that we look to Christ for assurance. We look to Him and His cross. And that's where we'll start tonight. Let's look at this, his, his first aspect of His message, which we'll call the Word of Life. The Gospel is so important to John that he opens and closes the letter by reminding us of this life-giving message, this life-giving gospel. And then he peppers the gospel throughout the entire letter. So let's just take the opening right now. Look with me at at the opening of the letter in in verse 1. John says, "That, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John opens the letter with an incredible reminder that he himself is a trustworthy source of the original gospel. That's what he's doing. We're going to unpack this next week. But he's saying he himself had first-hand experience with both the person of Christ and the life-giving message that he brought. He heard him. He saw him. He perceived his glory as the Christ. That's what it means when that, that other sight verb. He perceived the significance of who he is. And he even touched the Lord in his resurrected state. That's why he calls him the life. He heard him, saw him, perceived his glory, touched him. And his point is that the same Christ who John is still preaching is the same Christ he had experience with firsthand in his own life. This same Christ is this church's only hope and it's our church's only hope. He hasn't changed and neither has the path 
to resurrection life. It comes only through believing the gospel that John and the other apostles proclaim as passed down to us from their writings. First John being one of them. And notice that it's, it's simply through trusting Christ that what he says, full fellowship comes. Verse 4. Look again at that. We proclaim this life to you. Why? So that, middle of verse 3, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying full restoration of fellowship is available with the apostles and ultimately with both the Father and the Son. And it's all through receiving this message. What he's writing to the church right now. Full restoration to fellowship, all through receiving what John proclaims. That is staggering, it's exhilarating, and it's humbling that my relationship with God is fully restored in and through Christ alone and believing a message about Him. John's going to go on to pepper this gospel throughout the entire letter. And he's going to remind us that that Christ is our, our advocate. He's our propitiation still even when we sin as believers, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, look at this. My little children, I'm writing these things, you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That means His righteousness clothes you. And He's your advocate. He is the propitiation for our sins, current. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This evil world that hates you, by the way, He's the propitiation for their sins if they would trust Him. Propitiation means He has borne the wrath of God on your behalf so that you don't have to. He drank it to the last drop. So there's nothing but favor left for you. He'll go on to remind us that our sins have been forgiven for Christ's namesake. Look in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake, for Christ's sake, for His glory. They're forgiven. It's the Gospel. He's going to go on to challenge us to fully realize the love that God has for us as His children. Look in chapter 3. See, it's a command. Behold, realize what kind of love the Father has given to us that we we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we are. He's challenging us to embrace, realize and embrace the love that God has for us as His children. And to look forward, not only to embrace it, but to look forward to what He will change us into at His return. Look in verse 2 of chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We shall be like Him. We will be raised glorified, our inner life will 
our outer life that's dying and decaying will catch up to the inner life and we'll be reunited body and soul again in, an, in, a, in a glorified state to serve the Lord, to, to be productive in the new creation. What we, what we will be has not yet appeared, he says, but, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Meaning, we will be resurrected unto life in glory like him. That's gospel because you did not earn that. Christ earned it for you. He reminds us that before we ever loved God, put in Paul's language in Ephesians 2, when we were dead in our sins, before we ever loved God, that God loved us. He loved us first, chapter 4, verse 19. He says, we love, why? Because he first loved us. Because of my love, the reason I I return love to God and love to other people is because I have been loved. He reminds us that if we've trusted Jesus, the gospel came to you. You trusted him. You repented of sin. Praise God. But why did you do that? He says, that means God has already caused you to be born again. Look in chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. You could say it this way. Everyone who receives the gospel has been born of God. In other words, you have faith because he brought you to life. You trust him because he awakened your soul to trust him. He brought you to life. He has That's evidence that you have been born. That's evidence that you are alive, is that you trusted him. So not only does John start it, not only does he pepper the letter with the gospel, he even ends the letter very similarly to how he starts it, but again with a slight difference. In the beginning, he invites us to embrace true life or embrace this fellowship with God. But in the end, it's more in a negative statement. He warns us of drifting away from him and drifting into idolatry. Look here in, in, chapter, in verse uh, 20 of chapter 5. Listen to how it's, it's kind of like a bookend with the opening of the chapter, or opening of the letter. Verse 20, he says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, we have union with Christ, in other words. We're in His Son. He is the true God and eternal life. Here's the warning. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Stay away from the counterfeits of Christ, the Antichrists, and the doctrine of the Antichrists that's seductive, the lifestyles of the antichrists that pose as Christ, but they are not. Stay true to the gospel, in other words. Continue trusting Christ, relying on His free grace, and following Him in that. In other words, don't turn aside to false hopes, to false Christ, to any kind of idol. Or we could use another one of John's favorite terms that you're going to see again and again in the letter. Remain in Christ or abide in Christ. 
That means stay dependent on Him for your life. Remain, abide. Keep depending on Him for everything you need, including eternal life. So John knows that this is the bedrock of Christian assurance. That's why it's throughout the the letter. Starts it, peppers it, ends it with the gospel. Christian assurance depends ultimately not on ourselves, but on the work of Christ for us. And that's really the first way that John addresses the situation. But that's not all he says. He also tells us that for those who have passed from death to life in Christ, there will be signs of new life. There will be evidences in our lives that we've really trusted Christ, and negatively, there will be bad fruit in the lives of those who don't really know Him, even though they say they know Him. So we're going to call these signs of life. So there's the word of life, and then there are signs of life. Meaning God has brought, brought a new Christian. He's, he's birthed a new Christian, if you will. He's become the parent. So that new child's going to grow. There's going to be evidence, there's going to be signs of life, signs of growth, signs that this is actually a child of God. And like we said, John intends these evidences or signs to encourage those who are unsure if they actually know Christ. You know, they're kind of being influenced by these other, other people. They're being called legalists out here. They're being whatever it is. And they're unsure. Oh, do I really know him? Am I denying the gospel? He wants them to see, yes, you do know Christ. As, as unflashy as this is, you know him. There's signs of life here. Or he wants to help them see if, they, if they've only been a professor. They've, they've never truly known Christ. There's, never, there's not any signs of life in them. That's okay because you can repent now and embrace the life-giving message of the Lord Jesus. Embrace his love for you. Embrace his atoning sacrifice for you. You just have to humble yourself. You can't, you can't keep blaming your sin on other people. You can't keep calling it other things. You have to own it. That's the only path to the free mercy of Christ. So John wants that for these people. But he also intends these signs to help the church discern who the false teachers are and the false professors are, where the grenades are in the assembly, so they can know. Because everybody's saying they know Christ. So what does he say? Well, here's some examples. People can't claim to have fellowship with God or know God, John says, and then live lives that are totally contrary to the God they claim to know. They can't do that, John says. They're not able to do that if they're a true believer. Look, don't take my word for it. Look in chapter 2, verse 4. We'll go back to verse 3. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. We'll talk about that. That's not teaching a works-based salvation. He's saying that's a sign of life, that the commands are now a delight to you, that you want to do them, when before you just viewed them as a rule. Now it's like, whoa, I see this is good for me. So if we, do, if we keep his commands, that, that's an evidence, that's a sign of life. Whoever, verse 4, says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. 
and the truth is not in him. Searing words from the apostle of love. A liar who doesn't know him. Sounds awfully judgmental to our Western ears, but this is the word of the Lord. Here's another example that John gives in the letter. If, if they've truly experienced Christ's love, if someone's truly experienced Christ's love, he says, they will inevitably, won't be perfect, but they will inevitably love other people. Look in chapter 4. Verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves, here it is, has been born of God and knows God. He's not saying he earns a relationship with the Lord. He's saying he he has been born of the Lord. The Lord has birthed him now, and he acts like his dad, or she acts like her dad. Weird metaphor, I know, but John uses it, okay? Anyone who does not love, verse 8, does not know God because God is love. And then he goes on to describe the love of God and how it was manifested to us in the sacrifice of the Son. And he says, if God so loved us, verse 11, then we ought also to love one another. Now we know, Christians know, this is not perfection, and, and John is not teaching perfectionism. He just told us, back in chapter 1, that we need to confess our sins. That's an ongoing practice. So John's not expecting perfectionism out of the saints. We'll talk about that. But he's saying there's an impulse now in the believer to love other believers. In other words, they won't consistently hate their brothers and sisters in Christ and murder them with slander or turn away from them during their times of need. They won't do that. They won't just claim to love other people, but they'll actually do it. And that's John's point in chapter 3. We won't look there, but chapter 3, 17 and 18. It says, gives an example. If you see your brother in need, you turn away from him like you don't know the Lord. We, we don't need to love just in word only, meaning saying, oh, I love the brothers, you know, and then do nothing about it. We're not meeting any kinds of needs. Another sign, another sign of life here that that God gives is that the people who are Christians, get this, they will listen to the apostles. They will listen to the apostles. Verse 6 of chapter 4. I love John's humble confidence here. We are from God, meaning the apostles. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Saying, look guys, it's not that hard. I have been appointed as an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ. I have his spirit inspiring me to write scripture, to write truth, to codify this to you. If you won't hear scripture, you won't hear the writings, you oppose me, you oppose this group, not just me, but this group of apostles, the doctrine of which we're unified in, if you oppose this Truth, you're not from God. In other words, if they won't spurn God's word, they won't mock it, they won't avoid sitting under it, they'll gladly receive it. They'll want to talk about it. They're going to yearn for more of it if they're born of God. Jesus said, my sheep 
in the Gospel of John, they'll hear the shepherd, they'll know his voice, and they'll say, that's it. I've got to have the truth. In weeks to come, we're going to study both of these aspects of John's letter, the word of life and the signs of life. And do you know what's going to happen if we do? If we lean in and embrace the message? John tells us what's going to happen. He tells us what he he hopes to accomplish with the letter. And that leads us to our third and, and final heading tonight. We're going to call it John's goals. His goals for the letter. We've already seen some of these, but it'd just be good to kind of write them out here. What are his intentions or his goals for us from this letter? And we'll be brief on these. Just a few comments here and there. The first goal that we see, if you turn back to chapter 1, is a goal of, of what I would just call satisfying fellowship. Satisfying fellowship. We've already read it, but look again with me in, in verse 3. He says, I proclaim these things, this, this word of life to you, the, the, the Christ and His message. We proclaim Him to you so that you too, you as well, may have fellowship with us, and it doesn't stop there, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. The first thing, and I think one of the reigning ideas of this letter that he holds out, is this idea of fellowship with one another and with the Godhead. Again, we're going to talk about this in depth next week, but but what he means here is the depth of relationships that God intended for us when he created us in the garden. Relationships with each other, John says, and ultimately with the Father and the Son. We get to explore this next week. I'm super excited. I'm tempted to preach the message now, but I'm going to hold off because we're at the end because it's, it's good stuff. It's like staggering. Do you realize that that this is the great and glorious end of your salvation? Deep, abiding, eternal relationships with each other and with God. God himself. Right now. God is your greatest Friend, he's your king, he's your savior, he's all these things, but he is your greatest friend. He loves you more than any parent, any friend, if you belong to him. And his love never changes for you. This radically transforms John, and he wants it to radically transform us as well. And he wants us to grow in our experience of this relationship, of this fellowship. God's our greatest friend, and He Himself, God, has taken the initiative to restore the relationship to you. And He delights, more than you do, in the fellowship. It's it's staggering. So heeding John's letter will increase, he says, our experience of this fellowship with God and with each other. And it's not rocket science. I love that about the letter. 
That's the first purpose. The next one's greater joy. Greater joy. Look what he says here in verse 4. It's coming right off the heels of verse 3, the whole fellowship idea. And we are writing these things so that our joy, some manuscripts have your joy, but our joy may be complete. I think it's our there. I think he's, the apostle's referring to himself. But greater joy is one of the goals of this letter. John the Apostle wants completed joy. And how, how so? Like, what is, this, what is he getting at here? He wants joy knowing that his sheep, get this, are in full communion with him and with the Father and the Son. John is grieved by the Antichrists. He wants them to repent and come to this same fellowship. And he definitely doesn't want the real sheep, the sheep who are there, to be led astray by them. In John, uh, in 3 John, so okay, two letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he echoes this idea again when he's talking to Gaius, another man. He says that he rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. Now listen, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, talking about other Christians, that my children are walking in the truth. No greater joy. And that same heart comes out here in this letter in 1 John, throughout. John's joy explodes at the prospect of, of gathering people into this communion that he has gathering them to himself and ultimately not just an end in itself, but to the, to the Lord that loved him. John has something and he wants to share it. And he calls it the completion of his joy. Now, I realize that John's passed off the scene, so like, how does this apply? This joy, obviously, is a compounding joy. It doesn't just stop with John. You experience the joy of being in communion with God and with the saints. But I want you to think about this. It's the joy of every shepherd's heart to see the sheep flourish. It's the joy of my heart to see you flourish. It grieves me when people leave. It grieves you know, when, when people go out from us, kind of in the John, first John category. But it's the joy of our hearts as, as pastors, as, as the elders. I, I hear them talking. It's the joy of their hearts as well. So may I just encourage you to complete our joy as your leaders by pressing into this letter which is also going to abound to your joy. The Psalms tell us that in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy. And John implies that we can experience it now, the completion of it, as we are in fellowship with each other and with the Godhead, even in our dying state. Our bodies haven't caught up yet. But this is available to us right here from 1 John. Greater joy. Third, less sin. Another goal John has in writing is that we would sin less, right? Look in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I love that. John doesn't want us to sin. Why? Because sin is evil. 
and it detracts from God's purposes and will ruin our lives and the lives of those around us. A life of unrestrained sin, in spite of all of its enticements and temporary pleasures, is not good life. Not according to John. Doesn't lead to joy. That's not it. Doesn't lead to fellowship with God. Doesn't lead to the, the, the end for which we were created. It's death. It's satanic. And Christ came to destroy, John will say, the works of Satan. But this sinning less implies something else, doesn't it? Right? The converse, the positive. The rest of the letter, to sin less, according to John, means more righteousness in your life. More love for others. And get this, see the connection. This righteousness, this pursuit of righteousness, this pursuit of radical, self-sacrificing love, it flows from full fellowship with God in no other way. It flows out from receiving His unabated love for you, from believing what He says is best and right, and from not distrusting Him in the moment. That's, 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 that's puts wings on our obedience, that kind of fellowship with God. This trust in Him as we come to know Him more intimately, that will lead to less sin and more righteousness. Those who know Him will practice righteousness. John's going to say that multiple times in the letter. It's going to lead to more eternal productivity. It's going to lead to, to, to the greatest of the, the productive things we can do, which is loving each other. And that's another of John's goals from this letter. And it's something that we can, we can expect that God will accomplish in our lives as we press into to knowing this, this letter. And John has another uh, explicitly stated goal. He's got a lot of them in the letter. Um, and I would just call this one growing discernment. Just got this one and one more and then we're done. Growing discernment. Look in verse 26 of chapter 2. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So it's not a true purpose statement. I write these things to you so that, but it kind of gets, it's, I would say it's kind of packaged together here. I write these things, and one of the reasons is there's people that are trying to deceive you. So what I'm saying is he wants us to grow in our discernment, and you get that from the rest of the letter. And that's one of the reasons that he provides so many of these tests, if you will, so that our discernment grows. We see the bad fruit, and we learn what bad fruit is, we grow wiser, and we're more hesitant to follow particular people because we see, whoa, wait a minute. doesn't match what you're saying over here. And sadly, in evangelicalism today, we don't have any discernment. And it's quite common for pastors to be quickly elevated and highly esteemed for their giftedness in teaching with all their character flaws overlooked. We'll overlook a lack of love. We'll overlook unchecked pride will overlook patterns of anger and pastors who are gifted, but John does not want us to do that. He wants us to be able to spot these character, massive character flaws. He wants us to be able to spot these false teachers by their bad fruit so that we're not led astray. It's not to be critical of them. Not to joke, them on, joke about them on social media. It's, it's so that we're not led astray. And in a word, he wants us to, to grow in our discernment. And we can expect to, by God's grace, if we lean into this letter. And finally, we've already talked about it, but the last expressly stated goal in the letter is deep assurance. 
Look in chapter 5, verse 13. Deep assurance. He says, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you that you may know, know that you have eternal life. And again, listen, verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we've asked of him. John wants us to have confidence that that we truly know the Lord. This kind of assurance comes as the overflow, hear it, the overflow of everything that came before it. That's why it's at the end of the letter. As we learn to rest in Christ, rest in the gospel, as we learn to receive his love for us and, and believe it, as we learn to confess our sins and not to hide them or blame shift or call them something else, as we learn to follow him in our righteousness, as we learn to love our brothers and sisters, what's the result? He says, overwhelming confidence that we belong to Christ. Not a proud confidence, a humble confidence that we've been born of God. That we've been born again that resurrection unto life awaits us at either our death or at Christ's return. And we can be confident that we won't shrink back in shame when he comes, chapter 2, verse 28. We can be confident that he hears our prayers, we just read that, and will answer them in verse 14 of chapter 5. This and more is the sweet fruit of assurance of what John wants for every single one of you. So those are John's own goals from this letter. If he were here tonight, it's what he would want to see cultivated in our lives. But they're not merely John's goals. They're our Lord's goals for us. To know him and to live for him. So what a sweet encouragement the study of this letter is going to be to our souls, huh? I am thrilled to study it and to be changed right alongside each of you. I've been marinating in this for about a month and uh, just excited for the next, the next few months to, to walk through this with you guys and learn together. If you haven't already, just a practical note here, I'd encourage you to start reading this letter. When you finish it, just start it again. Um, I know that, that some of you, I've talked to you, some of you are reading this entire letter once every day for like a month. That's awesome. You're going to notice that the, 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 you're going to start seeing things when you do that. So just get it in you. Come with your heart prepared. There are a lot of very interesting and challenging passages to interpret in this letter. So come with your questions. I'll try to answer them. Um, We'll enjoy studying this letter together, like John says, to deepen our fellowship with each other and, and ultimately our fellowship with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your pursuit of us. And thank you for the tremendous gift that you hold out before us as we believe the writings of the apostles that you set apart and inspired to pin to us. You preserve their words to this day so that the words of John are echoing out to all of us tonight as an invitation for full fellowship with you through the blood of Christ. 
We don't deserve it, but we are thankful. It's in Christ's name we pray.